and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. That's 47 selections from the works of Alexandra Kolontai. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am going to be reading another piece of Alexandra Kolontai's fiction today, or at least the beginning. This is a short story called The Loves of Three Generations from the year 1923. It's actually one of her most radical pieces of fiction, I think, and it got her in a lot of trouble with her party colleagues when it was published because they thought it was an immoral story. Uh, I believe a lot of people actually have very strong reaction to this story because of the kind of sexual morality that is often attributed to Kolontai in this story. Now, of course, I think that people misread the story and that they try to, uh, you know, attribute to Kolontai certain thoughts and opinions that she may have not had or they misinterpret them. But certainly her Bolshevik colleagues in the 20s did the exact same thing, and she was excoriated for this short story. So uh, again, she wasn't the greatest of all fiction writers. I I think I've said that before. She was much more of of a polemicist, of a political writer, but occasionally she tried her hand at fiction, largely because she thought that her audience, women workers, were more likely to read stories than they were to read, uh, you know, political essays. She understood that many of, you know, working class women were tired at the end of the day, and if they were literate, they didn't really want to read a political tract or a diatribe or, you know, a manifesto or a pamphlet. They wanted a story, and so she tried to couch some of her political ideas and some of, especially some of her ideas about the concept of love and how love would change under a socialist society into fiction. And this piece of fiction is really, as the title suggests, three generations about changing ideals of love in Russia and the Soviet Union based on the changes in the larger society, meaning the Bolshevik Revolution, of course, and the new socialist economy. Okay, so I'm just going to read the first part of the story. Coming into my office one morning, I found, among a pile of private and business letters on my desk, a thick envelope that immediately arrested my attention. Thinking it might contain a newspaper article, I opened it. It was a letter, an extraordinarily long letter. The signature? Olga Vasilovskaya. I looked at it thoughtfully. I knew comrade Olga Sergeyevna Vasilovskaya as an organizer holding a responsible position in the Soviet Republic. I also knew that she was not even remotely interested in the work among women in which I happened to be engaged at the time. What had prompted her to write this endless letter? Glancing at the envelope once more, I noticed the words strictly personal written in large letters across the corner. Personal? Personal letters from women usually mean family tragedies, with a plea for advice and understanding. Was it possible that Olga Sergeyevna, this quiet, self-contained woman, it was unthinkable. I could not read the letter at the moment. Urgent matters clamored for immediate attention, and the letter was obviously too long and too serious for hasty perusal. But as I worked, my thoughts returned involuntarily to the letter and its writer. I recalled the few occasions on which I had met her, always in some official capacity. I remembered her dry, impersonal, rather reticent attitude towards others, and her remarkable efficiency for a Russian woman in business matters. On one of these occasions, 
I had also made the acquaintance of her husband, a former working man whose frank, pleasing appearance made him beloved and popular wherever he went, although she was probably more widely known and respected than he. She was his superior in the organization in which they were both employed. He was somewhat younger than she, but they had always seemed to be in such perfect accord with one another that one was impressed with a sense of harmony and perfect comradeship whenever one saw the two together. He admired her unreservedly. I recall one occasion when he said, in my hearing, But you heard what Olga Sergeyevna thinks about it. Why do you continue to argue the matter? To him, she was the supreme authority. She, too, was extremely fond of him, though in a more maternal way. I recalled another time, it was during a congress at which we were both delegates, how her face had softened and lost its haughty reserve and severity when they brought her the news that he was ill. Perhaps this physical weakness that kept her in constant fear for his life had worn down her reserve. But why should she write to me? For sympathy? She was not the woman to write a letter like this without a more serious reason. I had no opportunity to take up this letter that had taken such hold of my thoughts until I returned to my room that evening. I am writing to you privately as one comrade to another. I am writing to you because you are a woman and because I know that you are often confronted with problems of this kind. Perhaps you will be able to help me find a way out of the terrible depression that has taken hold of me. In the 43 years of my life, I have never been so ridiculously at a loss. You know me as an efficient worker. I know that I am generally regarded as severe and pedantic. Can you imagine me as the heroine of a love tragedy, a common trivia vaudeville sort of tragedy that because of its very triviality is so much the harder to bear only the thought that its triviality is superficial that there is a greater and deeper significance behind the situation under which i am suffering makes it possible for me to come to you were it merely a personal affair i should bear it as best i can but i am sure that in the last analysis my experience is the immediate result of that overturning of every accepted conception of life and social relationship that is taking place in Russia at the present time. Side by side with greatness and creative genius, vice and darkness still work their evil ways. I believe that my experience is not uncommon, and I shudder at the thought. It fills me with physical nausea. Am I wrong? Is my outlook on life still controlled by old, outlived conceptions? Do the prejudices of an overthrown bourgeoisie still control my feelings so that I take a distorted view of a perfectly natural situation? So my daughter insists, and Comrade Ryabkov, my husband, agrees with her. Who is right, they or I? Help me to find the way. Tell me if I am wrong, if it is true that only bourgeois prejudice is at the root of my horror. Here the letter stopped. On a new page, in a steadier, obviously more controlled hand, Olga Sergeyevna continued. I should like to tell you at once of this tragedy that is tearing my soul, but you would get only a distorted picture of what is going on within me if I were to tell you of these recent occurrences without giving you an insight into the past. 
you would be inclined to overemphasize superficial incidents while failing to recognize that they play no part in my unhappiness. This is not the commonplace tragedy of a woman who is losing the man she loves. It is all so much more complicated and poignant. Nor is it that I fail to understand what has happened, only the motives, the motives. I plead with you to be patient. Read my letter to the end. Remember, it is a comrade in deepest distress who writes to you, asking you for comradely advice and assistance. There were frequent erasures. Here, an entire paragraph had been crossed out. The letter continued on the next page. You remember my mother, do you not? She is still alive and has charge of the traveling library in the province N, where she is an important member of the Committee for the Public Education. Here, Kolontai takes a break from reading the letter and reflects on the letter sender's mother. So this is now Kolontai. I remembered her mother well, Maria Stepanovna, a typical propagandist of the 1890s, publisher of popular scientific books, translator of socialist pamphlets, and an indefatigable worker in the field of public education. She was universally respected and honored among the liberal political workers of her time, while underground revolutionists held her in high esteem for more than one great service she had rendered in their cause. The circle of her friends and admirers was large and varied. In her political views, she approached the Narodniki without, however, becoming politically active. Books, schools, and libraries for the poor and for the peasantry were her passion. She died shortly after I received her daughter's letter, and local labor organizations, as well as representatives of the Soviets and of the party, stood at her coffin, although she had never joined either a political party or a labor organization. She had been a tall, slender woman with a handsome, imperious head, intelligent eyes, and expressive features. Her personality commanded reverence. Indeed, she inspired timidity in those who knew her less well than we. She spoke in brief, concise sentences with a firm, clear voice. Usually, there was a cigarette between her lips. She was always simply dressed in a style of her own that cared nothing about current fashions. Her hands, particularly, had always impressed me. They were so beautiful, so carefully groomed. The hands of a lady. On her finger, she always wore a heavy gold ring with a dark ruby. I turned my thoughts to Olga Sergeyevna's letter, and now this is a quote from the letter. You may not know that my mother, too, in her younger days, lived through a tragic love affair, and that she came out of it, or rather went into it, with a very definite moral code of her own in the question of sexual relationships. She condemned without mercy those who failed to live up to this code of hers. In her heart of hearts, she despised them, though she was always a good-hearted, superior personality in the broadest sense of that word. In this question, however, she was intolerant to the point of pedantry. It has been the general assumption that we became strangers to one another because of political differences. This is not true. Our opinions of what is right and permissible in relations between men and women clashed when my drama first unfolded itself. My mother married an officer, much against the will of her parents. As the happy wife of the commander of a regiment, she gave birth to two sons and was generally considered a model housewife. But presently, the stagnant life that is found everywhere in military circles, 
a life of which only the outstanding characteristic is its extravagant style of living, became oppressive to one of her active temperament. You know what an inexhaustible fountain of energy my mother has always been. She had been educated far beyond the level usually achieved by girls of her class and time, had read most widely, had been abroad several times, and had carried on a lively correspondence with Tolstoy. You will understand that soon the commander of a small regiment in the provinces failed to fill her life. Fate threw the district physician, Sergei Ivanovich, into her path. Sergei Ivanovich, my father, might have been the materialization of a character out of one of Chekhov's books. With the confused idealism and restless striving into vague distances that characterized the Russian intellectual of that period, he had the Russian love for rich food and good living, and the Russian incompetence in the face of the trials and vicissitudes of practical life. He was a handsome, strongly built man. He liked the books that mother admired. He spoke with a great deal of sentimentality of the sufferings of the poor peasantry, yearned to go to the masses who were condemned to live in darkness, and dreamed platonic dreams of establishing libraries and schools and of conducting educational work on a large scale. The inevitable happened. One hot summer evening, the commander was absent on maneuvers. My mother found herself in my father's arms, the book on circulating libraries in New Zealand unread in the grass at their feet. It seems that my father was hardly prepared to see in this casual poetic dream of a hot summer's evening an episode that was to change the even tenor of his highly satisfactory existence. He desired absolute freedom in his personal relations. Besides, he had a good-looking, robust young peasant widow for a housekeeper. Mother, as I have already told you, had very definite opinions in such matters, however. It did not occur to her to fight against this love of hers, nor to keep it a secret from the world and her husband, since she had always believed and maintained that the rights of love were superior to those of marriage. To her, love was holy. She would have considered it beneath her honor to trifle with it. In Sergei, mother believed she found the personification of the ideal that her heart, mind, and soul were seeking. The man she passionately loved, the human being she respected, the friend with whom she would work hand in hand for the education of her people. She only knew one way out of her situation, an immediate break with the commander. She would build up her own life according to her own wishes, disdainful of the talk and vicious gossip of her neighbors. On the following morning, therefore, mother sent for Sergei Ivanovich and took him out to the path under the linden trees to read to him the brief, determined letter she had written to her husband, informing him of what had happened with characteristic frankness and asking for a divorce. Sergei Ivanovich was dumbfounded. He had not expected such precipitation. He stammered something about protecting mother's good name and reminded her of her son's. Mother was astonished but obdurate. And since she was enchantingly beautiful and my father in the honeymoon of his infatuation, the conversation ended in new embraces that strengthened my mother in her resolution to straighten out her impossible situation at once. 
This was not as simple as it appeared. The poor commander who loved her to distraction came home in desperate indignation and brusquely refused to consider a divorce. He overwhelmed his wife with useless recriminations, threatened to kill, now himself, now the doctor, only to plead with her a moment later to return to his home, if only as housekeeper and mother. Mother was deeply sorry for him, but her love for the man whose soul she believed attuned to hers was stronger than pity. Convinced at last that no amount of explanation would bring her husband to reason, she packed her belongings, her money and her books, kissed her boys, and departed without taking leave of the commander. The affair scandalized the government for a long time. The liberals supported my mother and looked on her desertion of the commander for a district physician as a protest against the existing regime. The local paper printed a poem in her honor. At a local dinner, someone proposed a toast to the heroic women who dare loosen the traditional fetters of marriage to throw their lot in with that of the wage slaves to work with the people. Okay, so that's part one of The Loves of Three Generations. I realize now, reading this, that I'm going to have to make it clear when I'm reading from the letter and when I'm reading what Colin Tai is writing about the letter. I'll try to be more consistent with that in the next episode. But until then, happy holidays to everyone. This is Kristen Godsey with the AK-47 podcast. Thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight. Oh,